You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even as some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, for our church and is given for our good. Well, all right. Let's pray. Our Father, we've come now to a passage which um, seems to be on a collision course with much of where our culture is. And yet we come to a passage that I have to assume your spirit wants our church to hear and hear very clearly. I know in a room like this, Father, there's people whose marriages have recently fallen apart and they are devastated. There's people whose marriages feel right on the fringe. There's people who've taken their spouse for granted and by and large in your kindness, they've continued on in faithfulness. And there's people here who long to be married and doesn't seem any prospect. Father, you've given this word to your church and we ask now by the power of your spirit, you'd make it for us words of life. And from it, we would know our Lord and Savior Christ better, and know more faithfully what it means to be His people. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Masa Amini. I don't know if that name means anything to you, but on September 13th of this year, a couple of weeks ago, Masa, this 22-year-old Iranian woman, was on vacation with her family, and she was arrested by the morality police right outside of Tehran. She, her crime was that she was not properly wearing her hijab. It wasn't that she didn't have one on, it just wasn't properly worn. She was transferred to a prison, and she was sentenced to undergo a re-education training program by the morality police. And on Friday the 16th, while some of us were up at camp, you may know that she died in prison. The police claimed that she had a heart attack and fell and had traumatic uh, head injury, but witnesses claimed she was beaten and beaten severely. And you may or may not know, but this amassed a huge protest right now in Iran. And in fact, uh, I think it set the record for the, the largest Twitter hashtag, hashtag Masa Amini, I think, set, broke the record a couple of days ago. There was a movement within Iran where women were taking off their hijabs and they were actually cutting their hair on video, and it was going viral all throughout Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook. We come to a passage like this, and I don't know about you, but as I read it, and I think about what is going on in our world, even in a place like Iran, 
And I think of the relative freedom women have in a society like ours. I wonder, you know, is Christianity part of the problem? Maybe it's a little bit better than Shiite Christianity or Shiite Islam, but is Christianity part of the problem? Is this part of, of, of the oppressive, uh, backwards approach to life that is hindering women from flourishing and being who they ought to be? This passage clearly instructs women to be subject, in subjection to their husband. And the question I want to wrestle with, whether you're a Christian or not, is what is Peter actually after? Is he actually arguing and expecting something that might smell like oppression to you? Or is he actually arguing for something that could possibly be beautiful, beautiful in a world and in a time like ours? You may remember we're in a sermon series looking at this letter from one of the early church leaders, an apostle named Peter. He writes to a group of Christians who are in modern-day Turkey, and we're going to learn very quickly in the next couple of, of uh, verses that these, these Christians are severely being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. They do no longer fit into the Roman society as they once did, and because of that, Peter actually tells them that they need to understand their position in this world as aliens and sojourners. I've been trying to say maybe they need to see themselves as displaced people. They might be living amongst the people that they were, uh, the community that they were born into, the people that they know really well, but at the end of the day, they've been born anew from above. God has put his new life into them, and they are made for a world that is to come. And so because of that, they now, despite the pleasures of this world and the persecution that they're experiencing, are called to reckon themselves as displaced people. But they're to have confidence. God has allowed them to be displaced, but he's placed them in the specific time and place that they're in so that they could be faithful witnesses of him, that they could continue on this project that he has of everyone on the whole face of the earth knowing that Jesus is the king and living under his rightful reign and rule and, and blessing and flourishing coming to all people. In a world of decay, these are a people who have tasted new life, and now they're disconnected from the social orders of their day. Peter has been trying to help these people unpack if they're going to see themselves as displaced people, persecuted, not fitting in. He's been going through the various social orders of the day and say, if you're an extreme minority group, if you're extremely dis disadvantaged and if you're persecuted, how are you going to function? He first said in the civil realm. Then he says, be in subjection to the, to the rulers, to the emperors, even to the governors. Then he went into in, the next very difficult situation. It seems as though a lot of these Christians had become slaves. He said, how are you going to act out your faith in Christ? Jesus Christ has made you free. You're part of the new people of God, new life. How are you to act in this world? And he gives them instructions as to how they're to submit to their masters, maybe in a greater way than they did prior to knowing Jesus. He's worked his way from the civic realm to the, the sort of vocational realm, especially for slaves, and now he works his way down into the home and looks at this institution of marriage. And he says, how has the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this new way to live and this new life that's been poured into our world, this renewal movement, how is it going to exercise itself within the family? And what I want to argue this morning is far from being oppressive. The Apostle Peter is actually telling all of us that we are sent out to the various realms that God has put us in, the civic realm, the work realm, now we're even saying to our very home, we're sent out something as missionaries, as ambassadors of that world that is to come. And he's calling us to participate in these earthly institutions with a subversive attitude. Maybe another way I could say it is he's calling upon husbands and wives to think of themselves as missionaries one to the other and missionaries to a watching world 
and he's calling for them to live in this missional way. So the structure of this passage is actually quite simple. You can see it in your bulletin very clearly. There's six verses dedicated to what it looks like for women to conduct themselves honorably in the watching world, in the marriage society. And then there's one verse as it relates to how husbands are to conduct themselves. And what I want to argue, and I, I might move relatively quickly. Pastors always say that and then go late. But, um, you know, I, I might move somewhat quickly. But what I want to argue is Peter is telling these women and he's telling these men that you are to reckon yourself as part of this new people of God and conduct yourself honorably in these institutions with an attitude like a missionary that you might bring transformation and renewal to that which the Lord has put you in. So first Peter's going to outline what honorable conduct looks like to the wives. And the lack of symmetry in this passage is quite jarring. You know, why six commands, six verses of instruction to the wives and just one to the husband? And if you look at, say, the Apostle Paul, you'll find that Paul actually has a, a more, more instructions to the, to the husbands in various one, uh, of his letters to the church. So you've got to ask yourself, why is there uh, some kind of uh, uh, disjunction? Why is, what's going on here? And I think, if I could make my case strong, is Peter's writing to a church which, by and large, is extremely in a minority position, largely in a minority position. They, they are, they're in a very difficult spot to function in society. A lot of them, it seems, are slaves, it seems as though they're being, they're being troubled by the governing societies that exist, the various governments that are uh, in their place. And Peter is actually writing to people who are in the worst case scenario, whether that be slaves or those persecuted by the government. Now he's writing to women, and especially to wives who are caught up in marriages, maybe where their husband disapproves of them participating in this new Christian religion. And he calls upon them and he says, what, what is the calling to do? Should you just flee this marriage out of loyalty to Christ? No. He says, be subject each to your own husband. Be subject each to your own husband. Marriage is a part of virtually every culture, class, and people. And if you know anything about the Bible, it was part of God's plan even before sin entered into this world. And Peter is saying that the resurrection of Christ doesn't undo these institutions of marriage, but it tells us that we are to engage them differently. And it says, wives, now be in subjection to your husband. Now, I must say a caveat, and please hear me out. I understand verses like this have been used, especially by men, to put women in very, very horrible situations where they are victims of abuse, where they're told they have to stay around their husband at all costs, they have to submit to their husband and act like a wallflower. That is not at all what Peter's going to say, and I'm going to try my best to unpack that. And elsewhere in the Bible, the Bible gives very, very clear instructions as to how the church is to wrestle through and navigate when it is proper that divorce ought to be severed, when, the, when a marriage needs to be broken apart in a holy and God-honoring way. But Peter here is giving general instructions to these wives as to how they're to function in their particular marriage, and he's telling them this, be subversive in how you think about your relationship to your husband. How, does, how do I get, make that point? Well, you must understand that from Plato to Aristotle to Seneca, they all argued that women were inferior to men. They argued that the women lacked the capacity for reasons, reason that male, the men, male gender had, and they assumed that women were ruled by emotion and therefore prone to poor judgment. I'm reading direct quotes from various thinkers. They couldn't hold office. They couldn't vote. They were legally dependent on their father until they could be legally dependent on their husbands. And in verse 1, Peter, with a church maybe like ours, looks the women in the eyes and says, to a class of people that 
the aristocrats say, lack reasoning skills, I'm speaking only and directly right now to you. He says, if you are married, if you are in this institution, there's a certain fidelity, a missional faithfulness that needs to characterize how you conduct yourself. He states it in verse 1, that even if some don't obey the word, that is, even if some of these, your husbands aren't Christians, the way in which they are going to find out and know and want to follow after Jesus Christ is through the conduct, through the conduct of these wives who put themselves into subjection to their husband, being respectful and pure, submitting to their husband under the great and high king, Jesus. So maybe we could say to the wives, Peter first says that there's a certain missionary-styled fidelity, a missional fidelity that will subvert and undo the structures in which exist in, the, in this particular society where the husband is, has mastery and assumes nothing of the women below them. He looks the women in the eyes and he says, you are the quintessential missionaries. You are the people to whom this movement, through whom this movement is going to spread through your faithfulness to your husband, being in subjection to him through your fidelity. Following Jesus is not going to undercut your commitment to your husband. In fact, it's going to renew and strengthen your commitment to the husband. The most powerful evangelistic tool the people of God have at this time, he's saying, is women being in subjection to their husband. His response is uh, quite straightforward. A response to this is quite straightforward for those of you who might be married to an unbeliever. He's saying, listen, if your unbelieving spouse agrees to stay with you, then you are to commit and to invest with all you have in that marriage. Maybe one way we could think about some application of what Peter is saying here is Canada is the G7 country, at least, with the highest percentage of common law marriages. And every year it seems as though common law becomes far more important than actually coming together and making a commitment in marriage between a man and a woman. If Peter can say this to women who are in unhealthy and unholy marriages, or I mean, sorry, unhealthy, but not necessarily unholy marriages, if he can call them to that, this should be a calling to us wherever we find ourselves, especially to wives, to be committed to our spouse in this fidelity. Let me just say briefly, Peter is saying that you can't nag your husband into the kingdom. You also can't nag your husband into gospel maturity. The way to move and your husband towards maturity or even into the kingdom will be a general attitude of faithfulness. The most powerful evangelistic tool the people of God have is a woman who will be in subjection, fidelity to the commitment she made to her husband. So we might say that Peter first talks about what we're calling a missional fidelity. I'm going to have to pick it up. He next talks about a missional beauty, and here's where things get somewhat dicey. He calls uh, for this missional beauty in verses 3 through 4. His instructions could be read quite literalistically as being anti-braid, I was thankful none of my daughters had braids in their hair today just for the, the strange feeling that might give to them. Uh, the gold jewelry or fine clothes. Um, Peter's, Peter's not actually trying to make a law around gold jewelry and braided hair and fine clothes. I think we can all read discerning enough to see what he's trying to say. He's trying to say there's a deeper beauty that you're called to than this external beauty. And in a world that is just absolutely fixated on youthfulness and beauty, Peter is saying there's a deeper and more important beauty, women, that you must cultivate. You must cultivate. The bigger principle is this. Much of our beauty is an attempt to encourage our self-esteem and to impress others around us. And there's, the Bible commends beauty, and there's something okay about that. But Peter is saying, cultivate that deeper and truer beauty of your inward person. This 
This is how you are to conduct yourselves as these displaced people. Peter isn't suggesting that women need to look unsightly or unattractive to men who are not married. He's not saying that you need to look for the ugliest woman and she'll be the most spiritual. But he is saying in a world that is obsessed with external beauty, the Christian community has got to be filled especially with women who know this type of beauty is temporary and it's fleeting. And there's a deeper and truer beauty which will take with you to the nursing home, which will be yours as your body begins to wither away and fall apart. Women are worthy. Women are called to conduct themselves in this worthy way. Cultivate an inward beauty. This should be an aspiration and an aspiration of everyone in our church, especially an aspiration, especially, say, we try to put upon our daughters. Now, it's interesting that Peter says that they are to cultivate a gentle and quiet spirit. And you might, especially if you're a woman who's already frustrated with me, there's a handful that have left already, but I hope it's unrelated. Um, (laughs) The gentle and quiet spirit Peter is calling for is actually characteristics not of gender stereotypes, of traditional stereotypes of women. It's a characteristic of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Peter says that they're to cultivate this general, gentle and quiet spirit, that, that, that inward beauty should, should evoke that, that's, that's how our Lord Jesus Christ is described. And that's, that's a description that goes out not just to women, but also to men. Let me make some very quick application about the missional beauty Peter is calling the church to. I wonder... Does your morning external routine match your morning internal routine? Are you investing time and resources in perishable beauty to the same degree that you're investing time and resources to the imperishable beauty? Listen, Peter is not giving you instructions that we need to set up a modesty police that are going to go around and arrest people in Toronto for not properly wearing the hijab. Far from it. He's actually saying... Cultivate a true inward beauty, a deeper beauty that is imperishable. That, that should be your goal. Sure, you have external beauty and, and delight in it. The Bible says many good things about being beautiful. I feel like I've already made this point, and I, I just can't make it enough. But cultivate a truer and deeper beauty in a culture obsessed with external beauty. Finally, Peter tells the women that they are to have what I'll call a missional hope, missional fidelity, missional beauty and missional hope. Where do we see this? Well, we see this in this strange passage in 5 and 6, verses 5 and 6, where Peter says, this is how holy women who hoped in God adorned themselves previously. And then he uses this strange example of Sarah and Abraham. And I must admit, it bothered me all week. You know, why does he use this example of Sarah and Abraham? You know, I don't know if you know, if you've been to my household, my wife traditionally doesn't call me Lord. I tried to put it in play this week. It didn't work out so well. You know, why this example, Sarah calling him Lord? What is going on? I mean, we know from church history and even from the Bible that Peter was a married man. You know, I'm just sitting there scratching my head like, did he talk this one over with the missus? The story of Sarah calling Abraham Lord. What is going on? And it's quite intriguing. I probably spent more time wrestling through why, why Peter picks up this example over others. And I'm pretty convinced um, that there's, there's actually something really promising and special here. Because Sarah is not a doormat by any stretch of the word. And in fact, as far as I can tell from the narrative in Genesis, Abraham actually obeys Sarah three times in various junctures throughout uh, the, the narrative. And in fact, Abraham is, is cowardly and somewhat sinful, and Sarah chooses to obey him, and the Lord ends up protecting her. And I think this must be 
This must be why Peter is picking up this example to these women who are in very precarious and difficult situations. In Roman culture, the wife would have to accept the religion of the husband. This, this would, this would be, bring great shame upon the husband. And Peter's assuming that they're not going to go back and offer the sacrifices at the temples their husbands were participating in. Peter's assuming that they will, they will, will, will um, continue to be a part of the people of God and reject these practices, sacrifices to emperors and other statues and gods. And he picks up Sarah as an example because Sarah, in the midst of a difficult situation, trusted her husband and obeyed him. Not just, the time, not, not just in the bad times, but in the good times too, when the Lord called him to leave his people and to start a nation. She obeyed him. She trusted him when she was of old age, and the Lord promised that a child would come through her to Abraham. She obeyed him even with fear, even with laughter. And, the Lord, and Peter picks that up and says, this is the first lady of the faith. Not a doormat, not a wallflower, not weak, but one that embodied a precious and honest faith. And her trust in God looked like a trust in the institution God had assigned her to be the wife of Abraham. And as she was faithful to Abraham, she became the fountainhead of a people of God, which, of which will eventually come our Lord Jesus Christ. She thought, in a sense, like a missionary as related to her relationship with her husband, and the world was never the same because of it. So this is what Peter is calling these women to. He's saying, stop fantasizing about being married to another man or fantasizing about even leaving your husband. There are fearful things about entering into a relationship with another person. You're walking into the dark, and it's very complicated and very challenging and very dangerous, but trust that the Lord has placed you in this relationship, and he will work in and through you in this relationship to make a true and lasting difference in this world, that you are participating in what it means to be part of God's plan to make all things new. The year was 397, and an aging Christian thinker wrote an autobiography. His name is St. Augustine. The book is called The Confessions, and buried in the narrative is a great tribute to his mother, Monica. And Augustine highlights the ways in which she influenced his father, Patricius, who was unbelieving, into a personal faith in Jesus Christ. Augustine described his mother's roles with these words. She served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you, O Lord, speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. What is Peter saying? He's reaching out to the wives and he's saying, you are part of God's plan. God's up to something in this world. The resurrection wasn't the end of his interactions with our world. In fact, he's beginning the process of bringing in this new creation of making all things new. You're in this institution of marriage and that is right where the Lord wants you to be. Now figure out what it looks like to think like a missionary in that world with your fidelity to your husband, cultivating a true and deeper and imperishable beauty and cultivating this hope that the Lord is indeed going to work in and through you through simple acts of obedience. This might be the means by which your spouse becomes a believer or maybe begins to take the faith seriously. This might be the means by which many great families, uh, many families are impacted in our world. Wives, you're a part of God's plan. This is what honorable conduct looks for the wives. Now let's talk about what honorable conduct looks like for the husbands. Women, you can sit back and nudge your husbands. Peter admittedly is uh, asymmetrical in the instructions he gives to the husbands, and I think that's because the husbands naturally had power in this particular society. 
and he primarily is focused on those, again, who lack power. But he doesn't, what he does say to the husbands is quite incredibly, uh, is quite radical. It's no less challenging. And I think it's still the same paradigm, that they're to think of themselves as missionaries as it relates to their wives. They're to have this missional outlook. He begins with a call to missional devotion. He says this, that husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way. Now, I could go on and on about the ways in which Peter's being somewhat ambiguous about what it means to know your wife or live with your wife in an understanding way. There's hints of sexuality that are tied to this that you can find in various ways, but by and large, Peter is saying this. Husbands, be curious about your wife. There's a missional devotion that you should have towards her. You should see this person as made after God's image, someone that God sent his son to shed his blood for that she might be rescued and saved. And you should see her with those eyes and manifest this missional devotion. You should know her needs. You should know what makes her tick. Um, Yeah, not what makes her ticked. You should know that too. But you should know what makes her tick. You should have a curiosity and a devotion towards her. This is the means by which God will use you within the institution of marriage. What this means is the next time you're sitting around with men drinking a beer and they say, I don't understand women, you better say, I've put so many hours into understanding my wife. Maybe I don't understand women generally, but my wife, I'm seeking to live with her in an understanding way. The other day I was sitting around with some guys and I heard, them, I heard this guy talk about his marriage and he said, all marriage is psychological. I was sort of scratching my head. He knew I was a pastor. And he said, and I'm learning I'm the logical one. <laughs> This kind of treatment of women, this kind of horrendous sort of assumption that women are inferior, that they lack reasoning skills, that they're dumb and don't don't deserve any time or day, is popping up again in the manosphere, in the internet, this sort of condescending approach to women that they're incapable of reasoning. Peter's saying, you you, you will have nothing to do with that. You have a missionary devotion to your wife. You will study her. You will know her well. In a sense, you will know her better than anyone else on the earth. She, she, she will be known by you, and she will flourish because of your devotion towards her. There's a missional devotion that you're to have. There's also a missional use of power that Peter calls for. He says that, that um, where do we see this? He says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, again, I think Peter's being fairly straightforward. He's not saying that every man is stronger than every woman, and there's quite a bit of women even in our church that are probably stronger than quite a bit of men. Men, but what he's saying is a general principle Men exhibit more physical sides and strength, and he's saying that allows for a certain power in society, especially in this society. It allows for a certain intimidation and ability to control just by brute force. Peter says you're not going to do that. That's not how you're going to treat a woman. She's going to be treated, especially your wife, as an honorable, honorable vessel, as an, a, a, the, the most delicate and precious vessel. You will not use your power to force her into submission ever. And that's why it's unbelievably ironic that verses like this have been used by husbands in a somewhat abusive way to sort of control their hand over their, their wife, telling her to be subject to me, submit to me, call me Lord. Peter's saying there's, you're going to use that power that you have in a missionary way. You're going to use it so that you can sustain the most delicate of vessel. Make sure that it flourishes. Peter is calling for husbands to use power the same way Christ used using the power to bring about the good of another. Missional power. I think I've said enough. I'll just say briefly, there was a previous time of day where no woman 
walking next to a man would ever been closer to the street, she would have been not on the street side, right? There was a day when no woman would walk through a door. The, the men would hold the door for women. I'm not saying that Peter is saying we need to uh, instill these kind of traditional manners. We've got to figure out what this looks like in our culture. However, there is a certain honor to women that must mark the Christian community. And I'm afraid right now our treatment of women isn't tremendously different than the watching world. Weaker vessel, greater honor. Finally, Peter is saying there's a missionary perspective that you must take to your wife. And I'm wrapping up here. And thank you for listening closely. And no one's screaming at me. There's a missionary perspective that that you must take into your marriage. And this is actually incredible. Because Peter actually dignifies the women and actually says, your wife is not just your property or your possession. She's not going to come into heaven basically by virtue of you holding her hand and taking her up there. No, she is an heir of Christ. Listen, women were not entitled, generally speaking, to be heirs of property. And Peter is saying to these women, you are heirs of Christ. And he's telling to these husbands, they're co-heirs with you. They're not getting in on your boot because of your hard work. They're getting in because of their bond. They are tied up and they're united with Christ. And he gives great dignity to the women. And he's telling the men that this is the perspective you must take towards your wife. This is a daughter of the high king. This is one to whom Jesus looked down the corridors of time and said, I will give my life so she might be with me for unending, uh, for, for eternity and beyond. This is one I want to be with. You are to look at your wife and you are to take that perspective. And with that perspective, treat your, woman, your, wife, your, your wife as a missionary would, in a sense saying, how do I bring about her flourishing and continue her growth? This is one to whom Christ died for. This is one to whom Christ loved. How do I make sure she always knows that? What I've been trying to say. I've been all over the map, but I've been saying this. Husbands, there's a certain missionary devotion that you're to have to your wife. A missionary use of power. And finally, a missional perspective. Let me conclude this way. Now, listen, I, if you're married, I hope there's something that you can take away from Peter's instructions. I hope that's straightforward. I know in a room this size, there's people who are not in healthy marriages. There's people whose marriages have fallen apart. There's people who long to be married and just can't find a way. There's people who are terrified of commitment. You know, all these things seem so direct, so straightforward. What is Peter saying to you today? Well, listen. What Peter is saying is what he said to the slaves and what he said to those in a persecuted society. That whatever institution you find yourself in, whatever stage of life or place of life you find yourself in, you are to work as an agent of God's kingdom, bringing renewal and hope into this good world that God has made. God is not going to trash his creation. He's not going to trash the institution of marriage, and he's not going to trash the various institutions that you participate in either. And so you are to think like a missionary in these things. Peter's been very specific to those who are married here. And I think if you're unmarried, he's given you great, great markers to look for in a potential future spouse. If your marriage has fallen apart, he's given you great things to lament and to mourn and to think about what it looks like to move forward. But what you cannot miss is this. Peter wants you to understand that because of the resurrection of Christ, everything is different. And God is not out to trash his old creation He's out to make and renew and make all things new. He's he's calling for us to have a subversive outlook to all the institutions we find ourselves in. To be patient as the effects of sin continue to weigh down on us. And by the power that Christ has given us through his spirit, to be agents of his renewal, sometimes through very ordinary ways, by being curious about our spouse, by being careful how we use power, 
by being faithful to our spouse, even if he doesn't necessarily deserve it. These are the means by which God's new creation is going to be brought in. And when it comes, when it comes, no sacrifice you made will feel as though it was unworth it. This is God's word for our church. I hope it means something for you today. I'm not exactly sure why the Lord lined things up so that we preached on it on our five-year anniversary. But I have to guess, in a church with as many married people as we have, and in a time where young children put a tremendous amount of pressure on so many people's marriages, it's important that we renew and stay faithful to this commitment the Lord has put us in. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for marriage, and we thank you for the way in which the Apostle Paul tells us that marriage is actually um, just a big live-action play given to the watching world so that we can see your love for the church. Father, there's a way in which moral instructions like this from Peter could, could, we could come upon us and we could just obey them sort of in a passive and half-hearted way, and it could create a really ugly culture and community where people look the right way, um, but inside are, are filled with turmoil and nastiness. Make us a beautiful congregation. For those marriages in our church, would you allow them to flourish and be, for all of us, a wonderful picture of your love for the church? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.